You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Amen. Thank you, Mike and Nathan and Matt and everybody thus far. I want to continue the uh, expression of what is the church by saying good morning because the church is the new covenant community of the spirit. And this morning is sort of the grand uh, pinnacle of a whole lot of plan and preparation and dreaming and hoping and begging and asking and pleading. God finally, in his wisdom and goodness and grace, said yes. And so we have gotten the opportunity to join together with our brothers and sisters this morning as an expression of the church. And so I want to introduce just briefly uh, my friend, Pastor Ricky Garner. Ricky, come on up here. Now, uh, Mike took his microphone back. Mike took his microphone back, so now you get to speak directly into my... Which is not where I'm not going to make you do that. Um, If you have not yet met... Thank you, Travis. There you go. If you have not yet met Pastor Ricky, I want to encourage you to do that any way you can. Either uh, hang out and have a cup of coffee downstairs, go to his house unannounced and have his wife Jane cook for you. Whatever whatever you want to do, I want you to get to spend some time with Ricky because this guy, he kind of... He, he kind of doesn't like it, but I sort of refer to him as Captain Awesome all over town. And so now people are like, hey, Captain Awesome! And he's like, I don't, I don't know you. So um, we are delighted that Ricky is us, that Ricky is uh, a brother in arms, a brother in Christ, that he is one of our pastors at Bethel, and we could not be more delighted. We're so overwhelmed that God is doing a thing and has chosen to involve us in it. So we're delighted. Ricky, would you just tell us a little bit And I know you're going to go downstairs, so tell us a little bit about that and what's kind of going on in the next several weeks. Yeah, so thank you, Eric. Uh, I haven't had anyone to refer to me as that, by the way. Well, they will now. (laughs) But uh, anyway, we're so happy to be here uh, and just overwhelmed at what God has done to bring all this together. There's been a lot of, as Eric said, a lot of planning and prayer and thought that has gone into this and we're happy that God has brought it to pass. And so what we plan to do over the next three weeks is to meet at this during the second hour downstairs and kind of share uh, what we think God is doing through our campus and uh, the vision that God has given us that has uh, joined us together with Bethel. Uh, and that is to uh, become a multicultural, multi-ethnic campus that we hope would infect all of our city, all of our community, uh, to become more united together around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we do, we're doing that not because we think it's just a good idea, <laughs> not because of re- racial reconciliation or any of that. We do it, I believe, because scripture says it is something that we should do. And we'll talk about that later today and how we believe God has directed us to do that. But to that end, we're just so happy, Eric, to be here. Thank you so much for allowing me to have this time. And, uh, you know, I brag about you all the time, and you can ask the whole people how much I have bragged about you. And I told them, and I'll say this to you, I can listen to you preach all day. (laughs) You're about to. I know, I know. But I love it. I love love this guy and I love Jane. They're just such sweet people. I'm so thrilled that not just that that they are now on our team, but we are that team together. We're on your team as well. It's such a such a neat thing. 
So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to invite you to pray with me, and then we are going to continue to worship together by studying God's Word. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that as we speak these words aloud right now, you must be tickled. This is so good, God, that what you want is for the gospel to sound forth the good news of what you've done to redeem us to yourself and to one another. And so we thank you for the opportunity to get to be a small demonstration of your redeeming grace. I pray blessing on Ricky and his family. I pray blessing on these that will gather. I pray blessing on those that perhaps will leave from the other three Bethel campuses to go and be a part of what you are doing in this new initiative. Above all, God, we pray that you would receive the glory that those who are yours would be encouraged and deepened in their walk with you and those that do not know you. God, we pray now for those who have not yet come, who are currently in darkness and heading to death, that you will use this to bring people into a saving knowledge of your son Jesus. I beg you to do that, God. I, pl- I pray and I plead that you will use this to bring salvation to this house. And I pray this boldly, God, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Thanks, buddy. Again, after this service, if you are interested in hearing more just about sort of the vision, mission, direction of what that campus is going to be doing, I encourage you to go down on the first floor in the listening room, and uh, Ricky and his team will be sort of walking through some of that. Now, if you've got your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you and encourage you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. The Gospel of John, chapter 8. And while you're turning there, I want to sort of just set the stage. When I was a kid... I can remember having conversations, and by conversations I mean venting angrily to some of my neighborhood child playmates at how hard life was. I would run all over the neighborhood with guys like Zach Brown and Philip Iverson and John Cleek, great name, John Cleek, and I'm using their names because they're never going to hear this because if they ever heard that I was a pastor, they would call an elder inquiry, I'm certain. But we would run around the neighborhood and we would hide. And, and my dad was a bit of an odd guy. Dad was um, not educated, really. Uh, and yet he was fascinated by higher mathematics. I completely had that gene seared off, apparently, at birth. But dad was enamored with, like, Italian mathematicians named Fibonacci and guys like this. And so huh, every one of the big evergreen trees in front of my house had an Italian mathematician's name. I have no idea why to this day. One of them was called Fibonacci, and it was this enormous evergreen, and he tried to explain to me because of the way the branches did this exponential growth thing, and do you know what I'm talking about? Because I have no idea what he was talking about, but the cool thing about Fibonacci was you couldn't kill it. It just lived and it grew, and so there was this sort of dead spot underneath it where my friends and I had sort of carved out a cave. We sort of dug underneath this tree, and it was right up against the house, and so it created this sort of little fortress of solitude for, a, and for an eight-year-old boy, this was like awesomeness. I could get right underneath there into this evergreen tree and Zach and John and Philip, they would all crawl in here and I'd say, gosh, this is so hard. Y'all don't understand. Man, my, I live under the oppressive regime. I used words like that back then. I live under the oppressive regime, the iron fists of Gene and Sylvia Barton. They're just so hard, man. There's just so many rules. They're always telling me to do this. And I hear my mom, Eddie, come inside. And I'd say, no, I want to stay out in my little, you know, man cave. And I would say, I just want to do what I want to do. And the penny dropped. I remember what I was wearing, the tough skin jeans and the Mork and Mindy suspenders. I remember it like it was yesterday, sitting in my little cave under the evergreen and thinking, that's it. 
That's my life's goal. I just want to be able to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. That's what it means to be a grown-up. <sighs> How's that working out for you? And I'll totally transparently tell you that I took that mindset way off into early adulthood. And it never worked out ever, not once. I sort of lived my entire early adult life always experiencing regret because I would do what I wanted to do and I would always have to look in the rearview mirror and say, gosh, I wish I hadn't do that. Why did I do that? Why do I do the things that I do? It was always a frustration. Finally, there was a time that came together and by grace, the penny clicked again and God set me free and I was free indeed. And so what does it mean to actually be free? This morning, our passage, Lord willing, is going to tell us this. The point of freedom, what it means to be free is freedom is doing what you want with no regrets. Freedom is doing what you want, but with no regrets. Now, for some of you, that is a completely foreign notion. You think if I did what I really wanted to do, there would be all kinds of regrets. Right. This passage is going to talk to us this morning about what does it mean to believe. Those who believe are free indeed. And what we want to do is synonymous with what we ought to do. And then we do it and we have no regrets. Instead, we have grace and peace and joy. Now, we are in the study of John's gospel. We've been there for many months now. The theme of the Gospel of John is so that you would believe. John is desperate for his readers to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So that you believe. And belief is what sets us free. And freedom is doing what you want with no regrets. How about that for a life well lived? Well, we're in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. I'm going to begin reading now in verse 31. John chapter 8 and verse 31. Verse 31 says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. Let me really quickly set the stage. We're in Jerusalem. In the Gospel of John, chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 all take place in one setting. They're in Jerusalem. It's one very long chapter. Jesus continues to ratchet up the tension between himself, what he's offering, grace and truth, as opposed to what the authorities of the day are offering, religion and obligation and duty and willpower. And Jesus confronts that system head on because that kind of system is actually from the devil. We're going to find out. So they're in Jerusalem. The Feast of Tabernacles is just concluding. And we found out in verse 30 that many of these Jewish people believed him. Many of them believed in him or on him. So what does Jesus think about this belief? What does Jesus think about their confession? It's really sort of fascinating. Jesus is never really concerned with numbers or outcomes or results. He doesn't lead his ministry that way. In fact, he makes sure that a lot of people leave. In fact, more people leave than stay because Jesus is committed to those who are committed. So he says in verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. This is not just a random conversation. These are the people who had said, we believe you. We understand and we agree. Well, how does Jesus feel about that? He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. 
If you abide, that is, if you remain, if you stay. Now, what Jesus says is in response to their confession of belief. The first word is so. Your Bible might say, therefore. Jesus is reacting to and responding to their confession of faith. Jesus says, oh, you you think you've gotten this. You're a believer. Well, if you are my disciple, my mathetes, that means my follower, my apprentice, my learner, my mini-me. That's why we are called Christians. We're little Christs. This is what it looks like. You stay, you remain, you dwell, you abide in my word. What is his word? Well, clearly, yes, it is the Bible. It is God's revealed word to us. But in this context, and in this case, it's also more than that. His word is the logos. It's everything that Jesus is, represents, and reflects. If you abide in him, yes, in his word, yes, you should have quiet times, and yes, you should have four highlighters on Instagram and tell everyone how spiritual you are by highlighting just the right passage and then never thinking about Jesus for the rest of the day. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. No, if you abide, if you stay, if you dwell, if you remain, if you never depart thinking his thoughts after him, seeing the world through his eyes, knowing what he knows, wanting what he wants, (laughs) then you're my disciple. So a whole lot more than some religiously mandated quiet time that you spend for seven hours, or sorry, seven minutes reading something from Oswald Chambers while at the same time skimming Facebook. I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind when he says, abide in my word. If you abide, you are truly my disciples. Verse 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. There's a, there's a cause and effect thing. If you are my disciple, then you will know the truth. If you are not my disciple, you will not know the truth. I want to let that settle in for a moment. Disciples of Jesus are those who know the truth. You're not a disciple of Jesus. You cannot, you do not, you will not know the truth. And that leads to a life of madness. Always scrambling in the dark, never seeing the shapes in front of you. If you are my disciple, then you are truly free. And the truth will set you free. Now, it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, expression there. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But really quickly, we're going to see, was their belief legitimate? Was it authentic? Because they're going to react quite negatively. Jesus says, if you follow me, I'll set you free. And they say, whoa, 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 free? We, we don't need to be set free. Verse 33, they answered him. Remember, these are the people who claim to be believers. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, uh, these, these Jewish people have uh, a selective memory. We've never been enslaved by anyone. Oh, let's see, hold on. Let's see. There was Egypt. Uh, let's see, there was the Assyrians. There was the Babylonians, there were the Hittites, there were the Philistines, uh, there were the Persians, there were the Medes, there were the Greeks, and there were the Romans. But other than that, man, we are free! Isn't that the way it is? It's, I don't know if any of you are as old as I am and saw that wonderful theological classic called Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I cut your arms off. No, you didn't. They're right there. I can see them on the floor. No, that's a flesh wound. They said, we've never been enslaved by anyone. They've never not been enslaved by anyone. In fact, they've been enslaved for so long, they don't know what it is to not be enslaved. Do you see? 
They don't know any alternative. Now, they obviously are aware of their national history, but what they're saying is, nobody's the boss of me. I do whatever I want. I am the boss of me. I am free to make my own choices. And you can almost see Jesus looking at them going, how's that working out for you? You're all a miserable bunch of wretches with regret. Now here's what I want you to hear about Jesus throughout this whole narrative. It's a bit of a surprise how he engages with them because I look at Jesus and I think, oh man, he's about to, to the moon, Alice, to the moon. But no, you know what Jesus sees? He sees them and he's not angry with them. I would be. Jesus sees all these little Jewish people huddled down in their Fibonacci cave saying, I just want to be free. I just want to be free. Leave me alone. And Jesus says, no, come out. If you follow me, only then can you be free. I want you to see how Jesus woos them with truth, but also with grace. By the way, I'm not going to sit down again because I'll never make it back up. I got another service after this. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, let me pause for one moment. Uh, throughout our service, our, our series on John, every time we see Jesus say, truly, truly, I say to you, this is rhetorical language that Jesus uses. It is forceful. It is direct. It is profound. It is, you hear me say this, you are now accountable to it. So when you see Jesus say, truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen, lagoi, I am saying something that you are now burdened by. Pay particular attention to what I'm about to say. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 34, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You are always going to do what you want to do most. Jesus is the creator of the world. He's also a creator of our entire species. And so Jesus does something absolutely profound, absolutely brilliant. He says, we know that sin is anything that is outside the character of Christ himself. Sin, Romans 14, 23 says, is anything that proceeds apart from faith. <laughs> anything that I do think or say that is not based or built on faith is sin. And Jesus says, and you are a slave to that. You can't help it. You will always make your choices according to that bondage. You think you're free, but you're not. You are always choosing that which you want the most. And so when you sin, it is because functionally and practically you value that thing, whatever it is, more than Jesus. Now, let me just tell you, that makes for a heavy week as a pastor. When I write that myself and I go, oh, oh boy, I sin because I love that sin more than Jesus. That doesn't feel very good. And yet, I know it to be true and I pray you will have the courage to look at your own spirit and see if it is true of you as well. When we sin, it is because we love sin more than Jesus. Because it's not so much as Bonhoeffer said that we hate God, it's that we have chosen to forget him. And so we are in bondage. We go back to that bondage. We go back to that prison. And so Jesus says, no, 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 no. I am the one who can set you free. Verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, to our 21st century American ears, that doesn't zing us quite like it should. Jesus is using slave and son language. Okay. Yes, he is talking directly and plainly to them, but he has a deeper meaning because of the audience that he is addressing. He is addressing Israel. Israel. 
the leaders in Jerusalem gathered for the Feast of Tabernacles. And they have already said, Abraham is our father. Our heritage, our lineage, our family tree is what gets us in. And Jesus says, oh, you want to you talk about lineage? Oh, 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 I see. Okay. Well, let me make sure you understand. The son remains, and in Jesus' mind, he's using language that they would have recognized. It comes from Genesis. This has to do with Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was the product of a slave, and the slave has to leave the house. He cannot abide. But the son, Isaac, remains because the father says so. So Jesus, very subtly, but very palpably and powerfully says, oh, you, you think you're sons of Abraham? Well, you are, but you're Ishmaelites. You think you're Jews because you come from Abraham? Well, you do come from Abraham, but you're Ishmaelites. You are out of the house. But I have the power to bring you back in the house. Because it's not about your family line. It's not about your national origin or your racial profile it's none of those things Jesus says it is about a spiritual kinship with the king and it's so interesting how quickly they revert whoa, whoa, whoa. what do you mean we're free we are from Abraham immediately they try to justify themselves our righteousness comes from our nationality of course I'm in I'm American of course I'm in I live on that side of the street of course I'm in I drive that kind of vehicle of course I'm in all of this self-justification stuff and Jesus says no if that's your, if that's your angle you are a slave you are not of Abraham you are an Ishmaelite now we don't understand the depths of that insult so let me, let me just try hey Mike Johnson you're an Aggie Oh, 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 <laughs> yeah, see, see, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm going to do that again. It's that times about a million for Jesus to stand there. And again, I don't know what you think about when you think about Jesus. He is no coward. He's not meek and mild. He's standing at the Feast of Tabernacles and he accuses all of them of being Ishmaelites. I love this Jesus. Verse 36, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. See, I even wish there was a different translation. Indeed, is, it, it flows nicely. It's lyrical in English, and you will be free indeed, and it makes for good music, but that's not what Jesus says. If the Son sets you free, then you will be free on toss, he says. If the Son sets you free, you will be free in your being and essence, you won't just experience and enjoy freedom. No, no, no. You're a very fiber. At the atomic, molecular level, you are free. Now, that is an unbelievably glorious thing that the Son of God is saying. If I set you free, you don't have to do a bunch of stuff. You are that stuff. You never have to find the will of God. You are the will of God. I mean, that's a deal. Sign me up. So that every single thing I do, abiding in his word, I am free. I don't have to try to lobby for and, and defend my own free will. No, no, no. I am free. Ontologically is the Greek word. In my being and in my essence because I am like Christ. I'm not Jesus, but I am ever increasingly growing in my just like Christness. Do you see? Ontologically free. Not enjoying and experiencing freedom. That's not enough. I am free. And let me just pause for one moment and say some of you this morning have been in church since there was nothing but black and white TV 
and you've never understood that your new ontology, your new being and essence is freedom. You're still merely trying to experience it periodically. And you are missing the glory of the blessing of the Son of God. If the Son sets you free, you are free in being and essence. That's a sermon and a sermon. I'm going to continue. Verse 37. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Yeah, 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 yeah. I get it. I get it. You, you, you think your, your race or your physiological lineage means something. I know that you're from Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. You want to murder me. And now Jesus is going to start to set the trap. And by their own words and actions, they will condemn themselves because that's what people do. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. It's not what they think he's going to say. It's not what they think because he just said, yeah, 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 you're from Abraham, but you don't have the fatherhood, the lineage, the paternity that you think you have. Verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Jesus is going to make an amazing point here. Children always do what their fathers do. Children always resemble and reflect their paternity. They can't help it. They are chips off the old block. And Jesus is going to say this several times for the rest of this chapter. I'm just doing what God says. I'm just doing what my father says. I'm just doing what he sent me to do. I, all I've ever done is what he does. And by the way, you Jews, you leaders, all you've ever done is what your father does. And they go, well, yeah, yeah, Abraham's our father. And he says, mm, mm No, because you're not doing what Abraham did. When God spoke to Abraham, did Abraham try to kill God? No, he chuckled a little bit, but he got up and he walked. Where am I walking, God? God said, walk. And so there goes Abraham just a walking. He said, if you were really from Abraham, you would do what Abraham did and receive the word of God. But you're not. You are rebelling against it. Verse 40. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Abraham did not try to rebel against God when he spoke to Abraham. You were doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual morality. We have one father. That's God. Now there's sort of a two-part zing here. At once, these guys go low. This is an accusation against Jesus because Jesus' uh, birth parenting situation was social scandal and the stuff of gossip. Hey, we're not the one who comes from sexual immorality. Zing, and Jesus is unfazed because he knows who he's coming from. It also is preparatory for in a moment they're going to accuse him of being a Samaritan, which is a, which is a joke. It's like that, that he, he doesn't even qualify that one. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. We saw the same thing last week. If God was really your father, you would know Jesus. So again, all of these people who say, I love God, I love God, and I don't really have much to do with Jesus. Nope. If you are truly of God, then you can't help but gasp in affection and yielded humility before the Son because he is God. Very clear there in verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Please, please, please put an asterisk by John chapter 8, verse 42. Because I know we all love and know the song, yes, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. And we sing that song and it's a great song and it's a wonderful song and it's a true song. But unfortunately, many of us have this notion 
that Jesus loves us, but God the Father is generally ticked off. And so Jesus has to come down and be like, hey, 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 whoa, it's okay, it's okay, God, whoa, it's okay. No, God the Father loves us so much that he sends the Son and offers the Son up as a willing sacrifice for us. And so Jesus says, I'm just doing what my Father does. You know what my Father is? My Father loves you. He loves you, and yet you reject him because you reject me. It's a very powerful exchange here. Verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You have constructed your own narrative of what makes God happy. You have constructed your own idea and construct of what it is to please God, and it is not of God. You cannot bear to hear my word because it threatens your entire system. And then John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus removes all ambiguity, how to make friends and influence people. You are of your father, the devil. (laughs) Okay, not your father, Habakkuk, or Naaman. No, no, let's go all the way because there's only two fathers. You are of your father, God, or you are of your father, the devil. Well, that went over about as well as you might expect. You Jewish leaders who are, by the way, the most righteous, moral, well-behaved people on the planet at the time, you are from your father, the devil. And you will, your will is to do your father's desires. He was, and you're going to get two characteristics of the devil here in verse 44. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth. So he's a murderer and a liar. What are these Jews trying to do? Kill him and make up lies about him. Jesus says, oh, you, you have a father. You too are chips off the old block. All I do is what my father says. All you do is what your father says. You think we have the same father and we clearly do not. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But verse 45, astonishing. It's a bit of a surprise. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Because what I'm speaking to you is truth. Because of that, you do not believe. What I'm saying to you is true. And since you are not of God's, you cannot believe it. Now that is an astonishing declaration that Jesus himself makes. I'm speaking the truth. And because it's truth, you can't believe it. That's amazing. It's a bit of a surprise to me. Verse 46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Now this is interesting. Jesus has been alive at least 30-something years, and he has never once ever, ever fallen into any kind of sin whatsoever. No thought, no word, no deed, ever. Now, there will be plenty of accusations launched against him. People will say, oh, you're a Samaritan, you have a demon. But no one could ever make an actual accusation stick, ever. I mean, think about it. He's over 30 years old, and not a single person that knew him at that time could raise a single thing against him, ever. So just to, just to sort of amplify this and demonstrate this, I would like for all of the men who are at least 30 to come up here and I'm gonna have everyone just kind of review your sin. Hist- I'm kidding, of course we're not gonna do that because we would be here for years. Every single one of us would be found guilty immediately. But the fact that nobody could say a single word against Jesus ought to have been enough to prove this man is God. This man is different, this man is special. But no one could convict him of a single thing and still they refused to believe because he threatened all of their system. Verse 47. Whoever is of God 
hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not from God. You are not of God. Again, this could not be more bold and courageous for Jesus to stand at the Feast of Tabernacles in the temple courts and say, all of you Jews, you have nothing to do with God. Now let me just pause for one moment. There are those who believe that John chapter 8 is not written by John, that it was added somehow later because this is so obviously anti-Semitic that it could not, should not be in our Bible. That is a complete adventure in missing the point. Jesus is not going against the Jews. He loves them. John is not against the Jews. He loves them. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you under my wing and, and cover you as a mother hen covers her chicks, but you would not have it. This is not a chapter about anti-Semitism. This is a chapter about refusing to be released from your own bondage when graciously offered by the Son of God. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? <laughs> Where did that come from? You're, you're a nasty half-breed that's demon-possessed. So we can't justify ourselves. This is what's called an ad hominem argument. We will undo your credibility. We will call you a Samaritan, someone who's of questionable character from the north and who is spiritually unclean. Jesus doesn't even really acknowledge that. I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Translation, I honor him, you dishonor me, you dishonor God. You are under judgment. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I'm not here to get acclaim and applause of men. It's not my job. God's going to judge, and he is the judge. He's also judging you. Make no mistake. 51, truly, truly, again, one of those statements, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He just kind of drops this on him. If you keep my word, you'll never see death. Now, death is always separation, physical death, body and soul separate, eternal death, person and God separate. And of course, that's what Jesus has in mind here. But they cannot hear his word, and so they miss it. Verse 52, the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. You're saying that anyone who keeps your word doesn't die? Well, they died. And fascinatingly, they've just acknowledged that Jesus' word is God's word. Without even meaning to. Do you see that? Wait a minute. Abraham died. The prophets died. You're saying that they keep your word, they would live, but they died. And Jesus says, no, I'm not talking about that. They say, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Ironically, yes. They miss it. Yes, he is saying that. And the prophets, that's really having to do with Moses and Elijah. Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? Jesus is going to answer them. Verse 54, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. My Father glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. You're here to glorify yourselves by what you accomplish and what you do, by filling out your little scorecard there. But God, he glorifies me. I'm not here on that program. Verse 55, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. What am I supposed to say, Jesus says? I have to tell the truth because I'm not like you. I am from him. I am for him. I am returning to him. I am God. And to say anything else would be a lie, but I can't do that because I'm not like you. Wow. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. 
Now, we don't know exactly what God told Abraham 2,000 years prior, but apparently God shared with his friend Abraham that there would come a day when the messianic promise of Genesis 12 would come to pass, when God would bless all nations through his seed. And then the Apostle Paul is going to pick up on that in Galatians 3.16 and say, not seeds, not the people of Israel, but one seed, singular, not plural, it's Jesus. He is the seed of Abraham. Apparently God shared that with Abraham. Jesus says something that they kind of miss. Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. My day. In other words, Jesus just claims to be the Messiah promised to Abraham 2,000 years prior. Abraham rejoiced to sing my day. Hey, y'all, it's me, it's here, it's now. And they miss it. They totally miss it. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham, <laughs> 2,000 years old, or more importantly, Abraham has seen you because he's been gone 2,000 years. Jesus said to them, amazingly profound verse, 858, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you. Now remember, when Jesus says that, it is, you are accountable to these words. Before Abraham was, I am. Not before Abraham was, I was. That would be true too. Before Abraham was Yahweh. I am the is one. I am the one who is isness. I am God. It is such a profound declaration of deity and divinity. We might not hear it in our day and age, but they absolutely did because look how they respond. Verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. I don't know how he gets out of the temple. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people there, and Jesus just sort of, bloop, and he's gone. Was it supernatural? Did he put on a cloaking device? I have no idea. I just know that Jesus leaves completely unscathed. And we have a tendency to say, yes, Jesus got out of that one. He escaped. But we must remember, that's not the point of this story. The point of the story is to make us sad for those who remained. This is all about God's sovereignty. He will not allow the Son of God to have one hand laid upon him until the hour is come, and the hour is not come, and so Jesus leaves. And in his departure, their condemnation is secured. St. Augustine put it this way, he said, as man, Jesus flees from the stones, but woe to those from whose heart of stone God flees. Jesus leaves, avoids their stones, but he also flees from their hearts of stone, and their condemnation is secure. So remember, all of this is in response to, and many of them believed on him in verse 30. This was all identified as believers responding to that. So what does it mean to believe? Believers have freedom, and freedom is doing what you want with no regrets. So let me just give, very briefly, some implications from this passage that I, I hope are portable for us all to walk out of here with. Number one goes like this. There are apparently, according to this passage, there are three kinds of people in the world. There are three kinds of people in the world. The Apostle Paul is going to pick up on this and develop it a whole lot more further in 1 Corinthians 2 and 3. But for now, we see there are three kinds of people in the world. Number one, there are non-disciples. 
non-disciples. These are natural, unregenerate, unbelieving people who have no interest or involvement in the things of God whatsoever. They are not of God. Jesus said they are ultimately associated with somebody else, the devil. That's one kind of person, just a, a natural person, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 3. The second kind of person is a disciple. That is, little Christs. They are apprentices. They are learners, followers. They are, they are protégés, if you will. These people serve Jesus Christ as their master and Lord. They live their lives with him now, abiding in his word now. They're not merely waiting to see him the day they die, one day. They have freedom. They see the world through his eyes. They want what he wants. And so they are free to do whatever they want with no regret because it is what God wants. And then there's the third kind of person in the world. And this is where we all need to sit up a little more straight, perhaps. There are non-disciples, there are disciples, and there are false disciples. These are people that know pretty much what to say. They are what I would call buzzword compliant. <laughs> and they claim to be believers. They can tell you how many days Noah was in the ark. They can tell you how many lions Samson killed. They can tell you how many disciples they were, not their names, but you know, there were 12. All of this sort of Bible trivia and minutia, but they are not free. They do not love God, nor do they abide in his word. They love other things more. And so their lives are racked with regret and exhaustion. They love other things functionally, practically, in reality, more than they love Jesus. They're false disciples. And so my prayer is that this text will make each of us look honestly at the mirror and ask the Lord who we truly are and if we truly are free. This text asks us to come up out of the little Fibonacci cave and do whatever we want with no regrets because what we want becomes synonymous with what he wants. Second point, perseverance is the mark of true faith. Perseverance is the mark of true faith. I know this is the kind of statement that can often be a denomination splitter. Oh, we're talking about the... No, no, it doesn't have to be. When we understand this passage and what Jesus is saying, let me just try to say that I believe that this passage obliterates that tension about the perseverance of the believer. If we have to just make it to the end of our lives out of sheer grit and willpower, then there's no wonder why so many people resist that idea. Because deep down we know that we are all prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love, and in various seasons and circumstances, sin. So does that mean that we're not believers? No. It means that you're sitting in your own strength and it's exhausting. So what this text is telling us is that if the sun sets you free and you are free ontologically in your being and essence, then you can always do whatever you want with no regrets. And the next thing you know, <laughs> you're dead and you're with Jesus. Woo! That's very good news. You're not trying to slug it out and obey out of duty and obligation. What you want becomes synonymous with what God wants. That's perseverance and it is the mark of true faith. Third point, we can't truly appreciate God's word apart from his spirit. Just super briefly here, I could spend weeks and weeks on this, but just super quickly. Jesus says it so clearly, and I don't want us to miss it. The reason some of us in this room might not understand this word is because you're not of God. Jesus says we can't understand his word apart from being from God. And so in order to understand his word, we must have God's spirit. 
It's always our desperate plea here at Bethel that God would illumine his word by his spirit among his people. Otherwise, we really are just wasting eternal moments here. And so as you enter this place every single week, I pray that you will be prayerfully prepared and walking by his spirit. Not merely walking in saying, I wonder how it'll be this week. Will they do good or not? Then it'll probably be not. I can just about promise you. We can't truly appreciate God's word apart from his spirit. See, freedom is doing what you want with no regrets. Some of you perhaps, even in this room, are still sitting in a way under a little evergreen cave declaring that you just want to do what you want to do and then you're somehow frustrated that it doesn't work out, that God won't bless it and that you still have so much regret. And I would just say to you, brother or sister, to be free of that, ask the Lord to set you free, to really release you from loving anything more than him. I know, because I know my Jesus and I know his word, that his answer is already yes. You don't have to clean up your cave first. Because where would you begin? It's a cave under a tree. Ask him to set you free. Ask his spirit to transform the desires of your heart so that what you want to do is actually synonymous with what you ought to do and then you get to live a life with no regret and you become the kind of person that gravitationally pulls others into the presence of God. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I invite you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. He is who he said he was. I dare you to pray and ask him if it's true. The answer is yes. And for the rest of you, be encouraged. You are free indeed. Now live accordingly. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for the morning, for the opportunity to be gathered together in your presence, by your spirit, among your people, and to study your word. And I do pray, God, if there's someone here this morning in bondage, may the chains fall loose. May they walk out of here ontologically in being, in essence, free simply walking around as the embodiment of your will. And Father, if there's someone here this morning who is not a believer, would you move by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son Jesus, that they would step out of darkness into light and that they would have courage to speak with someone they know and love and trust about this, that we can, as a church, usher them forward into a life of freedom. May it be exactly as I have prayed, God, or even better, because you are gooder than we think. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen. Let me ask you all to stand for word of benediction and we will be dismissed. I want to remind you, if you have uh, interest in hearing more about what Pastor Ricky and the Hope Campus is doing, first floor in the listening room. Now, may the God who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, may he equip you for every good work and may you have courage to do it. God bless, you're dismissed, amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.